0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Truly beautiful time of worship together. I don't know of a more beautiful scene than to see our retreat women um, front and center on a Sunday morning at North Monroe. It's probably the most beautiful thing that you'll ever see, not just beauty of the women themselves, but the beauty of what Christ is doing in you guys. And I'm so grateful we've been praying for y'all all weekend. I'm so grateful you had a good weekend. A couple of weeks ago, I started a, the talk with uh, an old song by Daughtry. I thought I'd continue the trend today with an old song by John Mayer. It's got some age on it, but it really captures the zeitgeist of this generation. It's pure postmodernism. The title of the song was Waiting on the World to Change. Do you remember it? Lyrics went like this Me and all my friends were all misunderstood. They say we stand for nothing and there's no way we ever could. Now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. We keep on waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. It's hard to beat the system when you're standing at a distance. So we keep on waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. I get it, don't you? It feels sometimes like we are powerless over the course and direction of our world. And we're just waiting on it to change, hoping for it to change. I mean, that's That's straight up postmodernism. I'm powerless over it. There's nothing I can do. I just have to endure it. But you know, I don't think God wants us to live that way because I think He's got a purpose for us. I think God's got a purpose for every one of us. And included in that is the calling to be a part of changing our world. Every one of us is called to be a part of that. Let's go to John chapter 14. I want to show you something I saw when I read this the thousandth time. You ever see that in the Bible? You know, when you read it for the thousandth time, something fresh that you missed all those other times comes up. Let me set the scene for you because it's very important that you understand the situation. Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. He washed their feet. He gave them the Lord's Supper. They had taken Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper. This is new covenant in my blood. John doesn't really go into the details of the Lord's Supper part of it, but we picked that up from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and then he starts talking about betrayal. He says, one of you is going to betray me. They all sort of come unraveled a bit at that. It's like, not me, not me. Who could it be? And uh, Jesus reveals to John that it's going to be Judas. And, and from that, this discussion of who's going to be the greatest. And, and then Jesus, and John again doesn't say this, but Luke does. He says, every one of you is going to fail. Every single one of you guys is going to fail. And Peter's like, no way, not me. I'm not going to fail. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're going to fail not once, but three times tonight. You're all going to fail. And I just feel the weight of that. I mean, if I say to you, you're going to fail, you might just get irritated with me and go, yeah, well, I'll prove you wrong. You don't know what I'm going to do. But if Jesus says you're going to fail, you're in serious trouble because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And if he says it, there's no way around it. You're going to fail. And so they're living In the weight of that, as they walk out of the upper room, they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, then Jesus kind of turns the story and begins to pour encouragement into them. The first thing he does is, hey, get a clear perspective. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, I've got a home that's prepared for you in heaven, which means everything you're experiencing in this life is temporary. You're aliens and strangers and travelers and vagabonds going through this life. Don't fall in love with the scenery. Live your life with a perspective of eternity. You know why that's so important? Because those who have done the greatest in this life were the ones who thought the least of it. And so we live with that eternal perspective that the things that we do need to be eternal because everything here is going to go. You think it's going to stay, it's going to go. When you die, they're going to pack up a U-Haul and they're going to bring it to Goodwill or to a resale shop. That's, that's where it's going. And all those beautiful mounts that you guys have killed over your life that you're so proud of, they're going to the dump. <laughs> Sorry. Nobody wants them. So, so invest in eternity. Then he says, depend on me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Understand, you've got to be totally dependent on me. And now he's going to shift gears. He's going to remind them of their purpose. And then after that, we'll look at it next time, about his provision, that he's going to give you the means, the power, the facility to take care of the mission that he set before you. But let's let's wade in a little bit this morning on purpose, because that's really where where it, it lands. And it really lands on verse 12. But to get there, I want to walk us through uh, verse seven and following. Just kind of dance across it, because we'll come back to this next week when we deal more uh, with the Trinity. Uh, but he says this in verse seven, if you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Philip, who never says a word, finally speaks up. Don't you love it? You never say anything, and when you finally do say something, put your foot in your mouth. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. So he's confused. "I, I don't get all this. You're going, you know the way, you know the place. Just show us the Father, we're satisfied. And sometimes, admittedly, I just want to say that to him. God, just show me the Father, and I'm satisfied. And, and Jesus is like, Philip, you, you moron. He doesn't use that word, <laughs> but uh, that's the implication. Philip, I mean, I've been with you forever. Jesus, look at verse nine, Jesus, Philip, Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who's seen me has seen the father. So why do you, why are you asking me to show, show him to you? Uh, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does His work through me. And so we see this beautiful correlation as a beginning understanding of what the Trinity is really all about. You've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. The two are one, the two are different. I don't really understand all that. We may talk about that a little bit more next time. But, but the, the point is, is that God incarnate was in the life of Jesus, that's who he was. So if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you hear Jesus, you've heard the Father. So he says in, in verse 11, just believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the works you have seen me do. If you if you don't want to just believe, then look at the works I did, man. We raised the dead. We fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We healed the blind. We healed leprosy. We, we caused demonics to come back to their senses. I mean, come on, man. How could you have seen all that and not seen the Father? But he keeps coming back around to the believe, you gotta believe, you gotta believe. Why is it so important to believe? Because now he's gonna tell you, because you're about to change the world. And you won't go out and change the world unless you are firmly convinced of who I am. And verse 12 really becomes the key for me. And this morning, that's what I really wanted to land on. Verse 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done. That's staggering. But then watch what he says. And even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. I read that and it stopped me down for a minute. Like I said, I read this a thousand times for the first time. It really set in on me because you have to feel the context You know, whenever you read the Bible, try to slide into that world. Try to feel what they might have felt. Read the Bible imaginatively. Uh, Get the setting. The old Germans called it the Sitz in Laban, the setting in life. What were they feeling? Well, he's just told them you're all going to fail. And so they're all feeling the weight of that and the discouragement from it. But now what are they feeling? He says to them, the works that I've done, you're going to do, and greater works than He says that a paragraph after he tells them that they're going to fail. Can you feel the power of those words? You're 10 years old. You're standing at home plate. Game's on the lines, bottom of the ninth. Two outs, two strikes. Your team's down by two. Your dad's yelling at you from the bleachers, keep your eye on the ball. You want to turn around and say, I never thought about that, Dad. I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> Stay on your back foot. Keep your elbow up. Put your elbow down. Here comes the pitch, swing and a miss. You're sitting in the dugout crying your eyes out. You're a loser. You caused your team to lose. You caused everybody to lose. You're just you've disappointed your team. You disappointed yourself. You disappointed dad. You disappointed mom. You disappointed your third grade teacher. You disappointed everybody. Everybody hates you because you're a loser. And you're sitting there just crying. Do you feel it? Do you feel the pain of that 10 year old boy? And then the coach slides over next to you and sits down, puts his arm around you and says, look, you got to trust me on this. I can see the future. And so what I'm about to tell you isn't just my opinion. This is really what's gonna happen. Tomorrow night, you're gonna be in that same situation, but instead of striking out, you're gonna hit a walk-off Grand Slam. Now, you're gonna go on to play a lot of baseball, and you're gonna win some, you're gonna lose some, you're gonna fail some, you're gonna succeed some, but you're gonna win your high school state championship. And then after that, A D1 school is going to want you. You're going to go and play. And your D1 school is going to win the national championship. Then you're going to get called up to the bigs. You're going to be that good. And you're going to to set records, and you're going to do incredible things, and your career is going to end in Cooperstown. And you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, you need to trust me on this. I've already seen it. I know it to be true. If you heard that, as the little 10-year-old boy sitting on the bench, crying his eyes out from his own failure, would that change how you saw yourself? Well, it changed them because that's exactly what Jesus said to them. You're going to fail, but you're going to do extraordinary things. In fact, the things you do are so extraordinary, they're going to be greater than what I've done. And you know, I want to tell you this. These words meant for them are meant for us. God wants to do amazing things through you. But I think first He wants to do amazing things to you. And you've got to get that. It starts with you. Everyone's waiting for the world to change because we want everyone else to change. God wants to change you so that He can change other people. And it starts with a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. That in that moment where you confess your sin, you admit your need, you receive Him as Savior. The Bible uses a variety of ways to describe that. Your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You move from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You become an heir and a joint heir with the kingdom. You become empowered with the authority of Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of those things happen simultaneously and you are forever changed. The old is made new. And then corresponding to that, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And then he throughout our lives begins that gradual process of changing us into the image of Jesus, because the one who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son and so as we are changed throughout our life that change that's in us becomes visible through us and the people in our small world become influenced by the change they see inside of us and they want to change and that's what we're seeing what do you what is what is Christianity what do we say it is it's one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread right And so the change that occurs in me becomes infectious for you and you want what I've got and then you receive what I've got and the people see it in you. They want what you've got and it goes on and on and on. So I change and then my change changes my world and then my world changes the big world. Because if you change enough small worlds, you change the big world. So when you get changed, your world changes. Change enough worlds and you change the world. And you don't sit around waiting for that to happen. But it starts with you. And it really starts with how you deal with your failure. So let's start there. Face your failure. You see, the disciples all failed. That was the prediction Jesus made. You're going to fail. It's prophetic. Guess what? They all did. Guess what? So will you. I fail. You fail. We all fail. And when we fail, we tend to do one of two things. We either trivialize our failure or we inflate our failure. And both are wrong. Don't trivialize your failure. You see, if you trivialize failure, you won't change your behavior. Failure is painful and we hate pain. We hate physical pain. That's why there's a a morphine crisis in our world today. We hate pain. We don't want to have any pain. We don't want emotional pain. We don't want spiritual pain. And so when we feel those pains, we have a variety of defense mechanisms that allow us to deal with it. One is we try to minimize the, 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 the crime that we've committed, the sin that we've done, the failure that we had, we try to make that into nothing, make it meaningless. Or if we can't do that sufficiently to remove the guilt and shame, then we do this blame game and we say, well, it's really not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's my parents. It's my society. It's it's uh, my maid. It's somebody else is always doing it. Because we hate blame. But here's the thing you have to realize. If you don't own it, you won't stop doing it. If you don't own it, you won't stop doing it. At this year's marriage retreat, Matt Barnhill was talking about apologizing and seeking forgiveness from your spouse. And he made this statement. He said, here are the three most important words in an apology. I was wrong. And he he had an interesting insight to that. He said, when I admit that I was wrong, then I'm far less likely to continue the behavior. So most of the time we'll say like, okay, 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 I'm sorry. Are you happy? But you never admitted you were wrong. Or you say, okay, I'm sorry if I upset you. Is that an apology? Here's the worst one. I'm sorry that you took it wrong. It's really not an apology unless you've said those three magic words. I was wrong." And yet I can tell you right now, there are spouses in this room that have never said those words to their partner. There are people in your life, there are moms who've never said those words to their daughter. There are daughters who've never said those words to their mom. There are dads who've never said those words to their son. And if you've never said those words, guess what? You won't change. But when you say those words, it delegitimizes your behavior. And you say, okay, now, because I was wrong, I can't allow myself to continue doing that. Second, if you trivialize failure, you won't learn from it. Every failure is a teaching moment. You know, Edison said, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And so when you fail, you learn. If you trivialize it, you don't learn anything. But most importantly, if you trivialize failure, you cheapen grace. If my sin is no big deal, then Jesus' sacrifice was no big deal. Well, let me tell you something. Grace is costly because sin is a big deal. It was such a big deal to God that He sent His Son to die for you. So don't trivialize your failure. On the other side is a tendency just as crippling. Don't inflate the failure. A lot of people go the other way. When they fail, they stop trying. My son Andrew loved to play with Star Wars characters when he was a little boy. You know, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all those things. And Amy made the mistake one time of calling them dolls. Where are your dolls? He's like, Mom, we don't play with dolls. They're our men. And so we had our man box, you know. But the thing about Andrew with his his Star Wars characters and his Lord of the Rings characters is he was super careful with them. He had every little lightsaber, every little gun, every little helmet, every little cape, whatever it was they came with, he was very careful to keep it. And if he ever lost it, any piece of it, if he lost a helmet, if he lost a gun, if he lost a cape, he would never play with it again. It's broken. It's ruined. I don't want it. And I would go, Andrew, just because you lost a gun, I mean, you can still use your imagination. You know, Why did he lose his gun? Well, he was in a gunfight, and somebody got it from him. So this guy's having to do it without a gun. He's like, it's no good. I don't want it. I won't play with it. And I think to myself, a lot of people feel the same way about themselves. When they fail, they instantly label themselves as a failure. And they say, I'm no longer perfect, so I'm no longer useful. Jesus told his men, and feel this, every single one of you will fail. But every single one of you is still going to do incredible things. Just because you fail doesn't make you a failure. So don't inflate your failure. Stop letting failure stop you. You will fail. It's not if, but when. And when you fail, it's so important that you deal with it in the proper way. So deal with your failure. If God's going to do great things through you, if you're going to change your world, you have to have a proper concept of failure. And secondly, you have to pursue your purpose. He said, the works that I do and greater, and that word is mega. That's the actual Greek word. And greater works than these will you do. And you know, I I, I draw two things out of that, and I'm done. The first is, dream big. I mean, not only did Jesus' words fill them with courage, but it expanded their vision. He didn't say, you're going to do what I did. He said, you're going to do bigger stuff than I did. And that's exactly what happened. You know, Jesus never went more than about 100 miles from his home. He never spoke to more than maybe 10,000 people at a single time. And when he died, he had 11 disciples left and a handful of followers. On day one of Peter's ministry in Acts chapter 2, you see it. He, he declares the gospel. Do you remember how many people got saved? How many? Anybody know? For real, this many people? Nobody knows how many got saved? 3,000. Three Thank you. Two Bible scholars in the whole room. <laughs> the first church was a mega church. And they went on from there, and in their lifetime, by the time those guys died, by the time those 11 guys died, and every one of them was killed for his faith except John, who had been banished to Patmos, there were tens of thousands of people fully committed to Jesus Christ. And within 300 years of their death, the whole world was changed, and the dominant religion of the Roman Empire was Christianity, and millions and millions of people knew Jesus. Because those guys were faithful. And I'm telling you, those words meant for them are meant for us. God wants to do big things in your life. And I believe He wants to do big things with this church. Excuse me. North Monroe is not trying to get big. Did you hear that? I couldn't care less about getting big. North Monroe is about doing big things. See, we've only got so much time on this planet. And I want to do big things. So the dreams we have have to be big dreams. I want to change our world, quite honestly. I don't like what I see, but I'm not going to sit under a light post like John Mayer and wait for it to change. Here's what I want. I want to see people fall in love with Jesus and grow in Jesus. I want to see families healed and kids grow up in a home that's safe and secure. I want to build strong men and godly women to lead this generation. I want that young girl that experienced abuse or assault to know you aren't defined by what happened to you. You are the righteousness of Christ. I want to see moral purity in the lives of young people so they don't spend their lives in shame, guilt, and regret. And I want to instill a sense of purpose and value in everyone so that their lives will know that they have a father who has a plan for them. I don't want to sit around waiting on the world to change. I want to see it change. And, and to do that, we got to have big dreams. Henry Blackaby, who just died, and we, all these giants are dying. He said, "When you have a dream, make sure it's God-sized. It's only a dream that it's a dream that only God could accomplish." You now we got a team in Uganda right now, and after that team, there's another team going to Uganda, and after that team, there's a team going in to Kenya, and then Joey's going to come back for Easter, Mother's Day, hang around. Then some of us are going to Cuba. And God is using this church to spread the gospel. We've already been to Burundi. And uh, uh, this year, they had already been to Burundi and, and uh, to Africa. Um, Joey posted this. Two years ago was the last time North Monroe traveled to teach in Burundi. Two years ago, there were 640 house churches. Today, today there are 2,360 house churches. That's an increase of 1,720 churches in two years. Approximately 25,000 people in Burundi came to Christ. We don't have time for small dreams. He said, the works that I do and greater you will do. So get busy. Notice he calls it work. You know, I got the impression that the disciples were a bit like John Mayer. They had this idea that Jesus was going to change the world. And so the disciples figured that Jesus would do all the work, and all they had to do was wait for the throne assignments. You know, let's just sit here and wait for the throne assignment. And I think there's a lot of people in church that are that way. They they think somebody else is going to do all the work, so let's just sit around and, and wait for the crowns to be passed out. Somebody said that modern church is grab all you can, can all you can, and sit on your can. That's what people are doing. Show up at 11 o'clock, show up 10.30 sharp, and leave at 11.30 dull. Sit, soak, and sour. That's not God's plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. But it's going to take work to do that. It's your work to do. Now, He'll do this through you, but you got to do it. So get busy. See, I, I, I was thinking about John Mayer's song, Waiting on the World to Change, And and then I was reading John 14, 12. And the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do. And I thought, what an interesting juxtaposition, comparison contrast between a postmodern mind and a biblical mind. We're not going to sit around and wait for the world to change. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to change us. And as the Holy Spirit changes us, He changes our little W world. And if we change enough little W worlds, guess what happens? The big W world gets changed. You ready for the world to change? Man, I am too. But I've got to be willing to let Him change me first. Are you willing to let God change you first? Would you just pray with me? And what if we made this commitment today? And here's our commitment. God, my first commitment is I purpose to deal with with my failure in a biblical way. I purpose to deal with my failure the way you would have me to. I'm not gonna trivialize it. I'm not gonna maximize it. I'm gonna fail, but under your grace, you've got a purpose for me. And God, here's the second thing. I'm gonna make myself available to be changed so I can become changed. Would you just pray that? That's a commitment. Heavenly Father, thank You for this encouraging word. that You've got something for us, that Your plan is in place. And it's more than just living and dying. It's more than just riding this ball around the sun. And so God, we purpose before You, change us So that we can change our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.